Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Rebecca Jackson. A celebrated expert in brain health and optimization, Dr. Jackson is the Chief Programs Officer at Brain Balance. In her role at Brain Balance, she drives programmatic enhancements and creates new programs to meet the growing demands of people wanting to achieve more for themselves and their children. As the author of her new book, Back on Track, a practical guide to help kids of all ages thrive, Dr. Jackson is a media fixture featured in respected outlets like the Mayo Clinic Press, Forbes, Psych Central, and Business Insider. She's also been a guest on national and local shows, including The Doctor's Show and NBC's Nightly News. In our interview, we'll be looking at what ADHD is, the impact of sensory input on our emotional circuitry, as well as how the pandemic affected people with ADHD, as well as non-ADHD brains, and how people of all ages can thrive by getting their brains balanced. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Rebecca Jackson. Hello there. Hey, thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. And I cannot wait to dive in because there's so much, there's just a wealth of experience and deep diving that we're going to do here. So I'm going to start off with my favorite question. I always like to ask, what to you, Rebecca, is ADHD? ADHD to me is challenges where things are harder than what they need to be. So it is no reflection upon a person's intelligence, their creativity, their level of awesomeness. But when an individual has ADHD, they often have to work harder to stay on task, to block out distractions, to switch from task to task and remember what they were doing. So things are just harder than what they need to be. Great. I love all the answers I've gotten. They're always different, but they're always, they come together in the middle. Let's put it that way, you know, so great start. Um, I want to talk about, so you wrote a book. Um, I mentioned this in the intro, Back on Track, a practical guide to help kids of all ages thrive. I'm a 53-year-old kid, by the way, still figuring out how to thrive. Um, I don't have a chapter I, for 53-year-olds, but hopefully the book's helpful. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact of sensory input. Uh, there is a part in your book where you talk about the, Im Im the impact that sensory input has on our emotional circuitry. I know that's a mouthful for those listening, but I'd like, and, and feel free to start further back. What is sensory input? Um, you have a whole chapter in the book about senses and sensory input. So yeah, take us where you feel like taking us, but that that really stood out to me. Like, what's the impact of sensory input on our emotional circuitry? You know, for me, I've been in this space. I've been working with Brain Balance for 15 years, doing research, working directly with kids and families, and then also on the research side, seeing huge numbers of assessments in kids and outcomes and changes, and then also now working with adults. And over these 15 years, the more I learn about our sensory system, the more it's it's mind-boggling. And it, I, I see the sensory pieces in parents and adults often get minimized, where a parent will say, "Oh, he's just a sensory kid," or "Oh, you know that bothers him, but he's super, you know super smart." It, you can have a brilliant child that also has sensory pieces, and sensory pieces are not specific to just kids. But the more I learn about how our brain takes in processes and responds to sensory information, the more and more I see how critical and important these systems are in our body. When there's any dysregulation or disruption in how we take in and process our senses, it changes our interaction with the world. When I think about just the conversation you and I are having right now, obviously we're listening to each other, this is a podcast, but as we record it, we've got the video on and so we can make eye contact through the computer and I can see as you're nodding along to see this is making sense or I've said something off the rails and need to get back on track. 
our our whole experience of interactions with people and interactions with the world come down to the accuracy of how my senses perceive what's happening. And what we see is when there's dysregulation with the sensory system, it can increase levels of anxiety. It can increase levels of distraction and decrease attention and focus. And the mind bomb for me is, is exactly the piece that you just pointed out is a study done recently was looking at how the three primary sensory pathways in the brain, which are sight, touch, and sound, how those three primary sensory pathways work to mature the emotional circuitry in our brain. Our senses is what matures our ability to control our emotions and responses. And I think sometimes we, we know that intuitively where you can see a child that um, struggles with sensory processing and, and might have bigger emotions and a harder time controlling that. But to see it in the research, it was just such an aha, interesting moment for me. And it's one of those things I think everybody should know about um, because it is such a, a powerful piece to understand. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, parents, we, as parents, as new parents, we always say, oh, well, there's no manual on how to raise a child, right? But what I noticed in your book, and I've seen this before in other books, not necessarily related to, say, ADHD or um, being on a spectrum, right? But is this uh, uh, the chapter on the developmental phases, right? Like what's developing at what age? And first of all, how important is it for parents to know this? Uh, where can they get this information? I mean, it's in your book, but like, how come this is not something that we all know, like just know, right? It's taught at schools, right? But it, it's part of why I wrote the book. I wrote the book that I wished that I had as a young parent. I mean, I'm still sort of a young parent. My kids are 13 and 15 and I'm not over the hill yet. But, you know, when, when I was newly pregnant and a new mom, I was scouring everything I could find to learn what can I do to optimize my kids' development. And I wanted information beyond sing songs and play patty cake. Those things are great, but I wanted the nitty gritty. And it was so fascinating to me that throughout pregnancy, what to expect when you're expecting. It tells you week by week, almost day by day, what to expect when you're expecting. What does development in utero look like week by week? And then we've got those same great milestones through the infant and toddler years. And then the books dry up. And yet we still have these kids that are growing and developing and thriving and going off the rails sitting in front of us. And as, as parents, what I feel and see at Brain Balance on a daily basis is parents asking the question, is this normal? Is this okay? When should I worry? And so I wanted to provide that insight to families because I couldn't find it in any one place. I had to you know, read all over and piecemeal bits and pieces because development impacts us into adulthood, how we feel and function now is dependent on what childhood development did to build and mature and make connections in our brain so that we can perform and function. So even at a 47-year-old age, and, and for you, it we're still dependent on our development. And so providing parents information with what development looks like year by year in categories other than just gross motor. You know, we know that kids roll and crawl and walk but then what does body coordination development, what should that look like for an eight-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 15-year-old? What does our social-emotional development look like? What does our learning development look like? I wanted to provide that information on well-being, on attention, on relationships and social interactions. What does typical development look like from birth to age 18 in all of these areas, and including sensory, not just in gross motor and fine motor skills and language birth to age two. Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, you know, I've learned some things early on as a new parent, and then I forgot about it. And then my friends would ask, and I'm like, I don't know, look it up, you know, like Google it. Um, but it's certainly not something that uh, unless you keep having kids and keep having kids, and it becomes common knowledge, or like you, if you become an expert in this, then you, you will know it, but it's hard for parents who are just overworked and overloaded and they have three kids and maybe two have learning difficult, you know, it's just a lot to know and to remember. So I'm glad. And for those of you listening, uh, pick up the book back on track. I think it's loaded with so much information. You can't just, you know, it's not a one night read and I'm like, okay, got it. You know, it's, it's almost like a, like you said, it's kind of like a little bit of a Bible. You keep it nearby and you kind of open it, you know? Exactly. Um, I, yeah, one go ahead. Um, that again, to go back to questions that we get from parents all the time, something that I think can be confusing to parents is you can have this child who's brilliant. Maybe they're ahead of age appropriate 
in some areas. Maybe their memory is off the charts and their reading and, and academics are phenomenal, but yet there's struggles in these other areas. Again, parents can minimize this and, and offset it to say, you know, gosh, you know, they're really struggling. You know, neighbor kids don't come to the door and ask them to play, or if they do it, it doesn't go well. But then the parent will say, but they're so good at math and they do amazing in school. And I think that can be confusing to families and to parents to understand their child is it's possible that growth and development doesn't happen equally in all areas. We can have a child that's ahead of age appropriate in some areas and behind in others. And the one doesn't offset, the strength doesn't offset the weakness, but understanding that combination and complication can give you insight and understanding into your child. And then knowing where some of those challenges are gives you an action plan of how to support that challenge so that you get to celebrate both the strengths and then shore up and address some of the weaknesses or, or challenging areas. Well, talking about challenges, um, you talk about in the book also about the impact that uh, the pandemic had, right? The, the recent COVID pandemic on not just ADHD brains, if you want to call it that, but also non-ADHD brains. And this is sort of folk trying to focus under stress. And the reason why I'm bringing this up, I kind of want to tie in my own personal belief on the cause of ADHD, which to me is this sort of this idea that the environment, right, everything we're surrounded by, including ourselves, our internal world, uh, when there's stress, when there's, uh, let's call it traumatic events, right, lowercase t, capital T, um, that affects uh, our functioning, our nervous system, our brain, you know, our behavior. So talk to me a little bit about what you found doing research on on this this impact of the pandemic on uh, ADHD families, and like I said, on non-ADHD brains. You know, the pandemic created for us inadvertently almost this petri dish scenario for research, where we took an entire society and just dumped piles of stress on top of all of us. And one of the biggest stressors we face in any life is change. When there's change, we're, we're all creatures, creatures, creatures of habit. And so we're, we're really familiar and comfortable with our habits. When we're doing things that are habitual, it takes very little energy and resources to do those things. But when change occurs, all of a sudden it takes tons of energy and resources to navigate the change. That's why it's hard to break habits. So when all of a sudden for our kids, it went from school at school to school at home and mom, how long am I going to do this for? I don't know. Maybe you're going to be back next month. Maybe you're not. We all faced massive amounts of stress of our whole worlds changed upside down, inside out overnight. And then we didn't know how long. And then we changed and changed again, masks on, masks off, in-person, remote. So as a, as a society, we went through this enormously taxing time. And what we saw as an impact is we saw just an escalation of all of these challenges. If you already struggled with attention, it got worse. If you were somebody that faced anxiety, it amplified. If your child was a struggling learner, they fell further behind. But even those that didn't have an initial known struggle or challenge started to experience those things. A tired brain is a negative brain and has a harder time paying attention, regulating mood and emotions, and stress and change and trauma exhausts the brain. So what we saw in kids is, is we saw in infants as young as set, uh, six months of age, there were structural changes to their brain. And, and that, you know, six months of age, they, they don't know and experience stress and change the way we do as adults, but those infants were experiencing less in the way of sensory input and less in the way of exposure. We kept our babies home. We didn't bring them to the grocery store. We didn't bring them to the neighbor's houses. They were in, in a little bit more of a vacuum scenario. And for kids older, we saw huge, huge falling behind in the academics. Some of that as a result of the virtual learning. Some of it as a result of increased stress, making it even harder to pay attention and remember information. Um, but we did just see this, this amplifying of challenges across all age spans um, that that really impacted so many aspects of our life. Now, as the world is, I call it a bit of a pressure cooker, right? Um, I don't think, I'm an optimist, but I don't think it's going to get any easier or more peaceful as we move forward. I do believe in, you know, kind of like this whole diamond uh, metaphor of like the pressure is what's going to make us more precious or makes makes us grow 
How do you see moving forward, the more stressors we have in the environment, how is this going to affect the more sensitive, and I, just, I don't mean this in a negative judgment, sensitive kids, but the, the sensitive human beings that are born today, right, that are born into this, this uh, clearing of already coming out and there's stress and there's bad news and there's the climate change and there's like the world's going down. I mean, how is this going to affect uh, this new generation? You know, it, it's such a balance, right? Where we know a little bit of stress can be a positive thing to the brain. Think about yourself and procrastinating, right? I'm notorious for if I'm asked to write an article. <laughs> I was writing an article on procrastination and I procrastinated on writing the article on procrastination. <laughs> but we know that if we, a little bit of stress actually increases our focus and motivation. And so when we procrastinate a little bit, we kick in into high gear to get it done in the end. So there's aspects where a little bit of stress and pressure to your diamond analogy, good things come out, but that's a really fine balance where now too much stress. And now I'm so worried about what I'm doing that I can't get out of my own head in order to write a good article. And so it's that balance of a little bit's good, too much isn't. So it's finding that resilience in what can I do to what's my threshold for what I can tolerate before something becomes too much. And now I become symptomatic. So I can't pay attention. I can't. And when I say that I'm not referring to an individual with ADHD, I'm referring to all of us, every single person. So it, it's, you know, knowing the basics, our brain requires sleep. Tired brain is a negative brain. I say it over and over and over again. We are not going to perform at our optimal capabilities if we're not rested. The brain needs fuel. We have got to eat to fuel our brain and body to perform, and we can't live on highly processed crap and expect, <laughs> you know, optimal results to come out. And then looking at, okay, how do we mitigate some of this stress? How do I say, you know, I can't control the world, but what can I control in my environment? So can I start with a to-do list that has due dates and times attached to it? So if I'm feeling super overwhelmed, okay, here's what I can do to start to feel a little bit more in control. So I think it's finding those daily strategies to optimize your current function and finding the pieces that you can control. And then as parents, what are the expectations that we're putting on our kids? Right. Of, of, and that's a whole nother conversation to, to kind of find that balance of supporting the best in them without overloading them with expectations that are too much and unrealistic for that individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, talking about overloading or sensor sensory, right. Um, there's this term that comes up a lot you talk about RAS. Can you just kind of, for our listener listeners talk about what is it and how come it's really important in your book? Uh, to know about this? It's the reticular activating system. I find a fascinating system. Um, and this is the system, I, I picture it to, to be the gate for our senses and our level of alertness with the brain. So a great way to understand just how the RAS, the RAS, the reticular activating system works in our brain is when we think about sleep. When you and I are sitting here, I've got light shining in through the window. I've got a dog barking in the background. I've got all of these senses that we're experiencing in the moment. When we go to bed, those senses, experiences don't go away, but our brain stops processing them. So when you're laying in bed, you still have the weight of the blankets, the dog barking in the background, the temperature of the room. But when we're not engaged with our core muscles, it tells the RAS to go ahead and close the gate. And closing the gate shuts off my brain taking in all of that sensory information. That's part of what allows our brain to calm and quiet enough to go to sleep. And then when your alarm blares in the morning, that noise, that's awful and it jolts us awake. One of the first things that we do is we stretch. And when we stretch, that fires a muscle that's firing input into the brain that starts to open up that gating system. And when that gating system opens, it's telling the brain, okay, we're going to start taking in that sensory information, that sensory input again. So how we use our muscles activates how much we're telling our brain to be alert. It's why if you spent all day, you know, it's a rainy Sunday and all you want to do is veg on the couch and your PJs with a book in the fire and, and binge your favorite show and you're tired and sluggish and groggy at the end of the day, 
because you didn't engage your, your muscles. You let your RAS, that activating system, be partially closed. So you told your brain, I don't need to be on high alert. I'm just really groggy, sluggish right now. And, and it's, it's a piece, my own kids probably get so sick of this, but I say all the time we use our muscles to turn on the brain. If I need to do something where I'm alert and focused and need to be making decisions and, and applying what I know, if we use our muscles first, if we do a little bit of exercise or stretching or sit up straight to engage our core postural muscles, it, it tells the brain, be alert, take in information to focus. Well, it certainly sounded like a complicated system to explain, but you did this really simply. I appreciate that. And I think, you know, it shows again, there's so many things at play here. You know, I often get asked, I get asked almost daily once people find out what I do here. Uh, with ADHD is over, they're like, well, what is it? What's the cause? Or how do you remedy it? Or what do you, you know? And it's always like, well, do you have at least 15 minutes? Because there's so many elements to it, right? It's not just one thing. Uh, but I want to talk, I want to use this opportunity to talk about brain balance. Uh, you've been with brain balance, I think uh, 15 years, is that right? Yeah. So, yeah. And for our listeners, it's come up often uh, where people or parents will say, talk about brain balance. So I'm, I'm glad we finally have you here, you know, um, talk to us a little bit about how did you get there uh, to work with brain balance? What is it? And uh, what can parents expect if they were to um, go to brain balance? And we'll have a link, you know, in the show notes and, and find out for themselves. What is it? You know, I first came to Brain Balance when I was a, a young parent. I had a, a two-year-old and I was pregnant and I, I was just hungry for information. I wanted to know as much as I could about development. So I started taking some courses on the neurology of childhood development. And um, the very first course I took was on the neurology of dyslexia. And my husband was traveling with his dad. And I called my husband and I said, Doug, you're dyslexic. And he said, no, I'm not. And his dad was in the car with him and he goes, yeah, you are. And Doug was like, what on earth? I'm 36. You didn't think to mention this to me. Um, and so it, in my mom at that time was an elementary school psychologist. So as I was learning more and more about the brain and about development and how we take in information and pay attention and learn, I would call my mom daily and say, mom, what are the schools doing about this? What do you know about that? And over and over, it was, a, you know, in the school environment, she simply just didn't have the tools to address those pieces. And she really felt like in her experience that, if a child came to her in kindergarten, they would often leave the school system with some of the same challenges. It looks different at different ages, and she would do everything in her power to support that child, but she said that she felt like she spent her career putting a band-aid on things. And I want to be clear, I have nothing but respect and appreciation and love for educators and the public school system. It is a challenging world. It's a challenging environment. We've got kids with so many needs, um, but I, I, this is such an important peace to know that the brain can change and learning and development and socialization, all those things can be enhanced when the brain is optimized through development. So my interest sparked first from understanding my husband in a different way and him saying, I had no idea. And, and to be clear, my husband's brilliant. He went to Vanderbilt. He's, you know, a great guy, um, has had a very successful career, but there were things that were harder for him than what he, what they needed to be. And so when I first sat him down and said, you know, gosh, I'm learning all of this information and it's all bundled into this program brain balance. And I think instead of being a stay at home mom right now, I had, I had sold my practice and was staying home for two years. I was like, I kind of want to do this. And his response was, if our kids don't have to struggle with what I had to struggle with growing up, that would be amazing. Why, why wouldn't we do this? And so it, it came from that firsthand understanding that my husband struggled with dyslexia. He had never thought of it that way because he still did well in school. He just had to work harder. He had to figure out the strategies that worked for him. And then I heard my mom saying the tools aren't equipped to create change, that we're creating modification and support tools. So I just felt this overwhelming need for families need a variety of approaches. There's no one silver bullet for every person or, or for any person. But we need a variety of approaches that are focused on driving change so that the more mature the brain is developmentally, the more effective it's going to be at applying whatever strategy or curriculum or behavior <laughs> approach that you're taking. And so it just the, the philosophy in the program really resonated with me. So 
And fast forward, my husband and I ran um, three centers in the Southeast for a decade. So we got to work directly with over a thousand kids and families implementing the program and supporting the changes. Um, and after a decade, the home office team asked if I would um, join the, the executive team. And at that point, the company had really been focused on the, the program and the happy families and the stories, but we were behind in research. We hadn't done the research to say, what changes are we driving? What does it look like? What's driving what? And um, I, I was jumping up and down, waving my hand saying, we need this. And so they were like, great, come, come do it. So I shifted at that point to the executive team where now I get to head up um, research. And as much as I learned um, working directly with the kids and families and parents, um, I've gotten to learn so much in a different realm now, digging into the research and looking at the data um, and really getting to work with some incredible um, scientists from, from all over the country um, to continue to, to learn and evolve and improve what we do. That's great. And so is it like, uh, for example, just so if a parent goes there and signs up, right, you're doing exercises remotely, I would imagine, unless you go to a center or, you know, could do both. But um, you're doing exercises remotely, much like online learning, where it's interactive, the child, um, or the, I guess, adult interacts with the software, right, and therefore trains the brain, or optimizes the brain. Is that about is that about it? I'm going to frame it up a little different. It oh, is please. we do have 70 locations all across the country. And so um, the majority of our kids come to us in person. And um, when it comes to our adults, a lot of our adults do the virtual program. And we have tons of kids that do the virtual program as well. It's still live coached. And so you're still meeting with a live coach through the computer. And it almost feels more like a physical workout program than an academic program. And, it, you know, if, if I, I get asked this question often is, you know, what's our secret sauce? What's the thing that makes brain balance so effective? And I'll tell you, it's no one thing that we do. It, the power of what we do is in the combination of all the things that we do. And we want to engage and exercise the brain the way you use it in real life. And so one of the things that we see over and over is it's easy to focus on the symptom. And so the challenge is the child that, that melts down during dinner or the adult that, that loses their temper when they're getting really frustrated or has a hard time staying on task to complete the project. That's the symptom. But if we're just focused on treating or managing this symptom, we've neglected why that symptom was there in the first place. And so brain balance looks at things through the lens of what didn't happen in development or what areas of networks and pathways of the brain aren't as strong, fast, efficient, don't have the endurance that they need in the brain that are complicating the output. So we're focused not on the symptom, but on the underlying connections in the brain and we see when we make those stronger, faster, more efficient, better endurance, that then your ability to pay attention for longer improves, your ability to block out distractions, your ability to keep your cool when you're frustrated and upset. And we do that by when you're doing a brain balance session, you're wearing four or five different pieces of sensory gear. So you've got lights and noises and vibration and all happening while you're engaging the core muscles, because that's going to open up your reticular activating system to alert the brain and get, and get it online. And then you're going to be doing body coordination and rhythm and timing and visual motor exercises to improve the complexity of the visual system and working on auditory and visual processing and cognitive activities that, that tap into memory and reasoning. And we do this over and over and over again. So each one of those activities is engaging a different set of networks and pathways so we want as much to come online all together at the same time as we can. And then we do that over and over and over again to really strengthen those networks and pathways. So it's physical, it's active. You can do it the entire program remote from your living room, um, but still live coach from Ray Mallet. So you can come into a center and do it. That sounds fun. <laughs> to have, it is. You know, right? My daughter's doing it now and I'm doing it along with her. Um, so it, wow. for all of us. Yeah, I was going to say this. So this is really just for a brain to get optimized, right? And um, I just wanted to say that there's this idea of fixing a brain versus healing it. And healing has been overused a little bit, but let's just say optimizing, right, in this case. What do you say to the experts out there who are like, oh, this is a broken brain and we just have to medicate it and then we're good? It's not, it's not a broken brain. There's, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing it, from my perspective. And it depends on the individual and, and the history. But it, it, to me, 
And I don't think about things typically in terms of labels or diagnoses. I don't think about it in terms of ADHD or autism or anxiety or sensory processing, because the individual that struggles with attention could have all of those labels or diagnoses or none of them. And attention isn't limited to just somebody with ADHD. Attention is something we all rely on every day. Um, so to me, it's all about optimizing. It's, it's improving and making things better. Um, and, and we all want to do better. Now, that being said, what I'll tell you in our research and outcomes is it, the term is stratified by baseline severity for our outcomes. All that means in fancy language is the larger the deficit, the larger the gain we're going to see in the program. And so if you're already doing pretty great, could you still see gains in the program? Absolutely. But those gains are going to be smaller than somebody that has larger areas of deficit. Um, so our reliability of change increases with the larger the deficit and the size, effect size of change increases with the larger the deficit. So the bigger the challenge, the bigger the outcome and the higher the reliability is of driving those expected outcomes. But this is just, you know, it's like diet and exercise. You can be healthy and you still benefit from eating well and continuing to exercise. Our brain is so complex. And the more I learn about it, the more I feel like I know nothing and there's so much more to learn. Um, but it, it's, this is just, it's an exercise program. It's an approach that helps to improve speed, efficiency, endurance of the brain and functions that helps us to perform in life. That's great. Yeah. It, you know, I love that about your book. There's a few times when I read uh, where you say, look, this isn't about, you don't have to have a diagnosis or this is not just for people because it's refreshing, right? Because we live in this sort of a black and white world where it's like, well, have you been diagnosed and labeled or you're, are you not, right? And then there's also that, I think there's that middle middle ground or category where uh, for us that with our son, that was the idea is that, look, he's aware of the label, he knows what it is, we're, we're, we don't believe in labels. So he's a unique brain or un, a unique human that just is asking for a customized guidance from his parents, right? Because he's a, he's a child. So for us, it's always been important to, we have always been gravitating towards materials that say, well, it's not black and white, right? And I just want to say, I felt that in your book and that's, it's, it's refreshing because I, I get so many books sent and I, have to not have to I get to read some books feels like I have to uh, make my way through and they land some of them land very black and white and it's like okay I get it but that's going to turn off a lot of parents who are tired of this this black and white thinking right so I just want to ask about brain balance right um, and, and and I'm not saying every single point of view that you have or opinion is that of brain balance is obviously uh, we have our personal opinions, but where do you see brain balance uh, come in in terms of like, I know there's also things like neurofeedback, right? And we see other modalities that have to do with the brain. I mean, there's there's been brain scans and uh, to, to determine whether it's ADHD or not. Um, what's the niche that, that brain balance said, okay, this is our niche versus say neurofeedback? Well, first and foremost, this is such an exciting time to be involved in this space because you know two decades ago we didn't have that perspective that the brain can change it was kind of like and, and that's why my husband never knew about his dyslexia his parents made the decision that they didn't want him to have that label limit him or impact his perception of self and his capabilities and his future and they were told there's nothing you can do about it he'll outgrow it you know it, it just is what it is we know that's not true that that you can change these things you can minimize um, the complications. And so it, it's just an exciting time. And I think it's so important. Parents and adults need to know that there are options and choices out there. And I'll say it again, there's no silver bullet. The right thing for you may not be the right thing for the next person or the right combination of things. But for people to know that if, if you've gone the route of medication and counseling and any other you know traditional thing that you can think of and you're still struggling, too many people are feeling stuck and there's so much information and so many tools and resources out there. And I, I just, I want to shout that from the mountaintops is there are tools and resources. So, you know, when I look at brain balance to me, what, what really excites me about our program is 
it's that foundational aspect of if somebody is struggling with attention and focus with executive functions, it's not just an executive function problem that results from the development that leads to it. So I, I'm a visual person. You saw that with my analogy with, with the gating system, with the reticular activating system. It's the same thing with development. I couldn't teach you, Roman, how to tap dance if you couldn't first crawl and walk and run. Executive functions are like the tap dance extravaganza. It's complex. It takes a ton of different systems all coming online at the same time in order to have goal-directed behaviors that you can act on and execute. So if there's any complications in any of those systems that contribute to our executive functions, that's going to make it harder. So to me, I don't want to jump to practicing the thing that I'm struggling in. I want to go back and change why was I struggling with that in the first place. So there are so many great tools and resources. So to me, it's always looking at the order that these things go in. If the brain is highly inflamed, if the body isn't converting um, different resources from, from one piece to the next in order to utilize it, that's something that I would want to address first. Then I would want it so that way the brain is set up to get the most out of the brain balance program. Then I would want to do brain balance to really drive and optimize that development. And I say that whether you're a six-year-old or a 66-year-old. And then at that point, then it's, okay, now that I've got the foundational tools in place that contribute to your executive functions, now I want to go practice those executive functions. Now that I have the tools and resources to do it, let's put it in practice because you do strengthen the pathways and networks that you use. So you can jump to practicing what you're deficient in and you will see gains there, but it's going to be less efficient if there's complications in the things that lead to it. Yeah. And you brought up, um, or this brought up for me, this idea of neuroplasticity, right? You said the brain, we think the brain can't be changed. And I hear this so much. I hear parents have been fed I call it the these myths or these incomplete truths that of like, oh, your child has ADHD. Sorry, just like you were sharing about your husband. Sorry, that's just what it is. Uh, the only options, well, oh, the really most effective is medication. Good luck trying everything else. But that's just how the brain of your child is. And to me, that's such a, I hate to say lie, but it's such an incomplete truth. And I feel like what you just described and many experts I've had on is, and science proves that the, the brain into old age can be changed, right? But to me, what you just described, boy, is that depressing as anything I can think of. I mean, talk about a limiting, you're stuck, deal with it. It is what it is. Good luck to you. And, you know, to me, I'm a positive. I'm a glass half full. I'm a, you know, solution oriented. So you give me a problem and I'm going to figure out a, a way around it. But to me, to know that the brain can change and and it's, you know, it, it's all it's all on a, a continuum. And so we can't take every brain that has ADHD and make it go away. But what we see consistently is we can reduce it. And for some, it's able to reduce it enough for that label no longer applies if you have a label. For others, it might go from, from you know, moderate to mild or severe to moderate. But it, it's a reduction of those complications by improving the networks and pathways. And and that's, you know, that's just, I know intimately what I've done for the past 15 years. So that's looking at things through my lens. There's other tools and resources that can also contribute to that. So suddenly, you know, you pull out a couple different tools from the toolbox and we know consistently change is possible. I've, I've published multiple studies with brain balance that over and over and over, we see from the perspective of parents, teachers, clinicians, diagnostics, we see change taking place that is improving attention removing and reducing distractibility, reducing challenging and defiant behaviors, um, change is possible. It doesn't mean that a 10-year-old isn't still gonna make you wanna pull your hair out on a daily basis. That's part of typical development. There's no such thing as perfect. Um, but if we get to minimize some of the complications to get more out of life, um, to me, that's a, a gift. Yeah. I have a very interesting topic I wanna to throw in the mix here, okay? Because you, right. you're a thinker, you're somebody who's been around the brain for a while. I want to talk about artificial intelligence in a certain, in a few different ways. One, how, first of all, the question, the first question is, how do you feel uh, artificial intelligence is going to um, inspire or infuse itself into something like brain balance, right? And how will that affect uh, potentially uh, parents or you know children who who interact with it? 
and I'll save the other uh, uh, question for the, okay. for the I'll wait I, till I'm, after. I'm intrigued and nervous, but here we go. Um, <laughs> you know, already we're benefiting in, in some ways. And, you know, we want to know, we can't help all people with all things. And so we're already leveraging our data to understand who is it that we help the most? What is the profile of the individual that we can drive the most change in? And how much time does it take us to drive that change? Are you an individual that we can meet your goals in three months? Is it gonna take six months? Um, so already we're able to leverage the data that we have to learn, to, to mine it. What can we learn from what we're already sitting on? And so that to me, the more specific we can be to say, if you struggle X amount here, here, and here, to profile that and say, if this is the profile that you match, here's how much change we feel confident we can drive and here's how much time it's going to take. Um, it's a word, artificial intelligence to me, if used cautiously and carefully and checked and double checked, it's going to allow us to refine and improve and get better at what we're doing. To this day, we can't tell you exactly what drives what change. We know the whole, our recipe works. <laughs> if I were to remove two items from the recipe, I don't know, you know, is that going to reduce things by 20%? Is that going to reduce things by 50%? So it's going to allow us to continue to iterate and learn and refine. We're constantly looking at our program to say, are there new things that we need to work in? Is there things that we need to update based on research so that we can lean into this area a little bit more? And it's going to allow us to continue to customize our program more and more to the individual um, based on those profiles and needs. So to me, it's an exciting, interesting time, but we also need to be cautious. There's always a human element um, that I think there's a, there is a person behind the data story um, in each of those instances and, and not everything shows up in the data. And so I think it can be a really helpful directional tool um, to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, there's so many facets to this because, you know, AI could be used to, like you said, to kind of uh, hone in on which program length is good for this person or, you know, sort of the norms or the the typical data that can be analyzed. And then there's also the, you know, could an artificial intelligence or a robot or a program uh, create the same experience for a human interacting with it, right? There's all that. What I'm really fascinated by, and I've been saying this for years, is I believe that, you know, robots in this case, or artificial intelligence can replicate or replace human beings with predictable patterns. But somebody like with ADHD is not a predictable person because they're impulsive. Um, just as a general note, right? So I always joke and I say, well, good luck AI trying to, you know, mimic the pattern of somebody who's impulsive, right? So in a way, I think those people are safe. They're not going to get replaced right away. <laughs> <laughs> That's my science. I mean that's Science fiction. That's have full perspective for sure. <laughs> right. But but no, I, I just think it, it is an ex exciting time that especially people researching AI, right? They're trying to figure out how does the human brain work and what, what are the patterns here? And I think we're going to learn more about our own brains trying to create artificial ones, right? So it's a good thing. Hopefully it won't get out of hand, but you know. Well, and, and I'm not well-versed in this area. I have a brother-in-law that I love talking about these things with, and he goes so far um, into it. But but having been involved in, in the AI world for 15 years, you know, one of the things that he talks a lot about, and we have, we have neurology conversations all the time because he's understanding the neurology in order to apply it to, to the side that he's on. And um, the, the idea of embodiment, our ability to sense and feel ourselves has been one of the toughest things that's been a hurdle in AI. And in our embodiment, our ability to sense and feel ourselves and how that guides and directs our thoughts and our actions has been a limiting piece. And, and we see that if you're a human that struggles with embodiment, <laughs> there's complications. And so to me, it, it goes back to um, the importance of you know, proprioception, that ability to sense and feel yourself and that mindfulness to be aware of how I feel in certain moments so that I can adapt and change. And so um, it will be continue to be fascinating to watch how the AI side of things continues to evolve and, and solve for that. And, you know, following some of the conversations on the, the digital healthcare medicine side of things, 
it's interesting to watch the conversations around AI there where, you know, there's instances where AI is um, coming up with a diagnosis faster and more accurate. Um, but then there's limitations there where, you know, that's accurate sometimes and not others because it's not able to take all of these other things into consideration. Um, so again, it to be continued. Where will we be in 10 years with this? I can't even fathom, but interesting to watch unfold. Well, thank you for entertaining this uh, thought. You know, sometimes I throw in a, a random thing that's connected, but, you know, it's out there. Um, so I just want to talk to um, uh, this sort of simple uh, point, not simple, but this 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 moment in a parent's life where their child just got diagnosed or they found out somebody said, well, I think your child might have ADHD or autism or dyslexia. What is your advice to parents? You're a parent yourself. You know, that's a very, mo that's a monumental uh, 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 news bit that you get there. That's like, a, that changes your life forever. That's like a, a marriage or a death of a loved one, or, you know, that's a big event in life. What is your advice to parents that are right now in that of like, oh my God, what does my child have and what am I going to do? Yeah. I, you know, first and foremost, don't catastrophize. <laughs> and that's one of my favorite words, catastrophizing, you know, stay in the moment. This is don't jump ahead to is my child going to live in my basement forever? Are they never going to be able to get married and go to college and have a job and have a family? Stay in the moment. And one of the things that I've learned from from watching so many brain balance families navigate this journey over the years, I didn't I didn't know that there wasn't a really clear cut action plan. You know, when I got involved with brain balance and, and started learning more on this side of things, I was pregnant and had a two year old. And so I hadn't lived this, nor had I watched people really experience this. So I naively thought, you know, when when you have a strep infection, there's a to-do list. Go get this antibiotic, take the antibiotic, probably take a probiotic along with it. If it doesn't clear up, you know, in five days, give me a call. I didn't realize that there wasn't that clear-cut instruction plan that came with, you just diagnosed your child with autism, now what? Your child has ADHD. Here's what you should know. I didn't realize how much parents were left and are still left to navigate a complicated, complex journey. And watching families try to figure out what's the right next step. What are my options? What is the, the order to do these things in? And, you know, I, and I'm like you where the label is never the focus for me, but there are times and places where the label is, is helpful and effective and needed. But even understanding do I need the label? Do I not? It, it's just, it's a more complex journey um, than, than what I ever realized. So I think for a parent staying in the moment, you know your child best, trust your gut and reach out, ask for help, talk to people. I think there's so much power in, in knowledge. And so, and again, I can speak to brain balance because that's what I know so well. The brain balance assessment provides so much insight into you've got a 10 year old that in some areas of function is is functioning like that of a seven year old other areas is like a 12 year old it can just provide so many insights of no wonder why they're so good here but then can't follow a three-step direction to get out of the door on time even though we've had the same routine every day for 10 years why you know so to me that the data does tell a story and it gives parents that sense of oh my gosh, it doesn't mean I'm a bad parent. It doesn't mean I'm messing my child up for life. But to give that understanding of this is harder and there's a very real reason why for it, for both your child and for you. And to me, the more you can understand about the complications, the more effective you can be at putting in an action plan to support and address those complications. So knowing, again, understanding that combination of, of challenges and strengths, um, so to me, I, I hope in an action plan, <laughs> you know, things can change, but give me an actionable plan of, of what realistically can I do to get there and what does there look like for my child? So stay in the moment. <laughs> Don't, freak out. Don't freak out. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And that certainly was our experience too. And I'm, I'm glad I'd done enough work uh, and my boy's mom at the time as well, like to really, you know, not freak out and be like, okay this is interesting. Now what, you know, and, and do the research. I always say, do the research beyond the first two pages of the Google search results, you know, listen to your gut feeling like, you know, your child best. And if something is off, then that doesn't mean the child's broken. It doesn't mean this is the end. And like you said, don't catastrophize. I love that. And, and it's never too late. 
you know, it's so interesting to me where we work with the number of eight to 12 year olds we work with is off the charts. The number of 16, 17, 18 year olds we work with is lower. And then there's this resurgence in, in college age and older again. You can still help and minimize and support a teenager. You know, we have this very much focus on early intervention and absolutely the sooner you can step in and, and create change and support the better. There is a healthy developmental trajectory. And when that developmental trajectory goes off track, the sooner it goes off track, the bigger the gap it's going to be. So the sooner you can get that back on track, the more you can minimize that gap. But that trajectory can be impacted at 53, at 43, at 13, at three. So intervention is, is great if you have the ability to do that, but there is no guilt, no lost time if you haven't. You can still, in, in you know, back in Brain Melts, we started with, with just kids and then we had just this, this wave of college kids that were struggling and people saying, you know, please, 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 what about my older kid? And we were like, okay, but we haven't researched this. Let's, let's, you know, we don't know what the outcomes are going to look like. Our college kids crushed it. And there was this level of, they could identify their struggle to say, this is hard for me and I want to do something about it. And so we had really expected, we, we still expected change, but we thought it was going to be small. It was larger than change that we were seeing in our eight, nine and 10 year olds because they were motivated, they were committed, they were driven. And so suddenly it was like, oh, okay, well, if we could do it with this age, you know, what about, what about adults? And we're seeing amazing research showing that adults are self-reporting a 42% reduction in challenges with attention and distractibility in, in a 30 some percent, I should have had the stats in front of me, um, increase in their productivity. Um, and so it's, it's not too late. You haven't missed the window. Maximize it if you're there, but but don't give up. Well, Rebecca, this has been a great uh, journey here in our conversation. I really appreciate it, and I hope that our listeners will check out uh, Brain Balance. Like I said, I'll put the link in the show notes. And I thank you for your time uh, to to come on and really enlighten us around uh, sensory input and the brain and RAS and parenting and the developmental stages. All that's in the book, in your book, Back on Track, A Practical Guide to Help Kids of All Ages Thrive. So thank you so much for being on. Well, thank you for a lovely conversation and for having me as a guest. I appreciate it.